Well, if you have, if you have a Bible there uh, with you, if you want to turn to Mark's Gospel, chapter 3, Mark 3. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, the sermon text is printed on the back side of your bulletin. Or if you'd like a Bible, uh, raise your hand and somebody will be glad to grab one off the back table there, there for you. But uh, I'll ask, as is our custom, again, not out of respect for me, but out of respect for the Scriptures, God's Word that we are reading, that you stand for the reading of God's Word today. Mark chapter 3, verses 7 through 21. Mark 3, 7 to 21. Give ear to the reading of God's word this morning. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on a mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated this morning. Well, I sort of mentioned it earlier in the service, but this is kind of one of those passages of of Scripture that uh, if you're looking for the uh, practical application type of passage. This isn't going to be your cup of tea. Uh, although I believe there is uh, every passage of the Bible should be should be our cups of tea, uh, and and beyond that our meat and drink. But um, there is application to all of Scripture. But sometimes uh, the application isn't what we normally think of as as such. There there isn't really a command or an imperative to us, at least not explicitly. Uh, to be found in our text. And yet this is one of those passages that while you might, you know, like Jan mentioned about Isaiah 13, you know, sometimes you read a passage and you say, I'm not quite sure what I'm supposed to get out of this, you know, the takeaway for myself today. Uh, this may be one of those passages where you're not sure what that takeaway is to be, uh, but it's a very important passage. It's a very important account uh, in the history of the work of the gospel. It's a crucial account really, of the history of the church. And really, it's a, it's a, it's a crucial account uh, about the world's history that has been altered and changed and turned upside down because of these 12 men and Christ's work through them. You know, it's not too much to say that this little band of fishermen and tax collectors and, and zealots and, you know, whatever they were, probably not known very to be famous to their neighbors when they were called, um, they went on to change by God's grace and the work of his spirit all of world history from their day until ours. And that will continue however long the Lord may decide 
to tarry. If he comes back after our day, these 12 men and their work in the gospel will keep on echoing forth and spreading because it's the work of Jesus Christ at the right hand of God, the Father causing it to happen. Now in Acts 17.6, when the Apostle Paul and those with him traveled to Thessalonica, uh, those people, the unbelieving Jews in that town, in that city, they referred to the Apostle Paul and those with him who were preaching the gospel as men who have, quote, turned the world upside down. It It wasn't a compliment. They weren't saying, hey, it's great we have these guys here. They're saying, these people who are turning the entire world upside down have come to our town. That's, that's what they were saying. And that Paul is certainly included in that group with the other apostles. Somehow by the grace of God, the grace of Jesus Christ, and the power of the Spirit of Christ working through them, these 12 simple, unremarkable men, you know, men whose names you probably don't remember all of this list. If I were to say, close your Bible and shout out the names of all 12, I have to admit I probably couldn't do it myself other than the first handful. Uh, But these unremarkable men, these simple men, along with Paul, who was one born out of due time, uh, had such a remarkable impact through the work of the gospel of Christ that in less than 30 years, those unbelievers in Thessalonica acknowledged that they had changed the entire world. Twelve men, less people than are sitting in this little bitty church this morning, turned the entire world upside down, if you can imagine that. Our outline this morning will basically only be two points. Don't let that stop you. Not three, just two today. Uh, although, uh, no, we don't do things that way. Uh, I almost tried to come up with a third point myself. I'm so used to having three points. Uh, we're going to spend most of our time, I think, on the second point. But uh, the first thing we're going to look at is in verses 7 through 12. It's the crush of the crowds. And the second thing, and in many ways the primary thing, in verses 13 to 21 will be the calling of the twelve. So the crush of the crowds, the calling of the twelve. So the first thing is the crush of the crowds. It might be easy, tempting, even for me as a pastor and a preacher, to kind of pass over those first, you know, few verses, verses seven to twelve, without giving them much attention or thought. You know, given the fact and why is that? You know, in some ways it sounds like a lot of the same, right? It sounds like it's it's a repetition of the same things we've been reading about in the first two chapters. And in some ways it is. You know, Mark here tells us again of, of some similar things. Great crowds. This is not the first time Jesus has had great crowds thronging after him. Uh, they came from all over to hear Jesus Christ preach and teach. They came maybe even more so to be healed of diseases by him. Uh, here we read again of demons or unclean spirits recognizing Jesus, calling out that he's the Son of God. They recognized him for who he was and cried out, And once again, we see Jesus again for the third time in in three chapters, Jesus displaying his authority, his power over demonic forces, and and making them be quiet, making them be silenced. And yet, these verses, verses 7 through 12, they're not, they really aren't bare repetition if if we're paying attention. Even though the same things are kind of being brought up, it's not just repetition. It's not just there for its own sake. This is not filler. Um, The first thing is these verses highlight for us, as the previous passages did too, that there was an increasing intensity building up in Jesus' following and the attention he was attracting to himself by the crowds. Mark is painting a picture for us, if we have ears to hear, of these crowds getting bigger and bigger and bigger 
it's it's it, it's hard to really be uh, to get a, a real grasp of what uh, he's painting here. He's he's painting a picture of these crowds kind of obstructing his ministry, like he he can't go anywhere without being harassed and followed. Uh, they're obstructing his ministry, and even in, in our text, if you're if you're reading it, they're placing him in danger. What does he tell them to, the disciples to do? Have a getaway boat ready. I mean, it, it's hard to imagine this picture. We don't know how many people were in this this huge crowd. We get an idea, but people with all kinds of diseases were pressing upon him, kind of closing in on him to touch him. That, that would be a frightening picture to me, I, probably to most of you as well. It, it, the, the word really is crushed. He was being squeezed or crushed by, by the crowd. Back in Mark uh, chapter 1, verses thir- verse 33, uh, when Jesus and his disciples were in the home of Simon and Andrew in Capernaum, we're told that the people brought so many sick and demon-possessed people to Jesus' door for him to heal that Mark says, this is the way Mark paints the picture, the whole city was gathered together at the door. I don't think Peter and Andrew had a humongous house. I don't think they had a fortress. I don't think they had a palatial estate. I think the picture is, you know, standing room only doesn't begin to describe it. They were packed in like sardines in this poor little house. And then not long after that, in the very next chapter, not too many verses later, Mark chapter 2, verse 2, Again, Jesus comes home to Capernaum, and what does it say? Mark says, there were many were gathered together at the house there, so that there was no more room, not even at the door. used to be packed at the door. Now it's like not even room at the door. And remember, that's the the scene where those men lowered their paralyzed friend through the roof. Like people were just, it's, 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 it's kind of hard to imagine what that scene must have looked like. Well, here in our passage, Jesus he retreats out by the sea again, the place where he called some of the disciples already, and he encounters another great crowd. Now the house isn't even part of it. They're following him wherever he goes, uh, whether he's in town or by the sea. These crowds are really starting to build and to follow. In verse 7, Mark says that Jesus withdrew. He drew back, uh, again, with his disciples to the sea. Now, part of that Part of the reason for that retreat, so-called, I know some, I have a friend who says, whenever you talk about a you know, Christian retreat, he says, Christians don't retreat. You know, they, well, Jesus, part of his retreat uh, here is, is probably those, those verses right before this where the Pharisees were plotting his death. He, he backed away from the synagogue not because he was fearful uh, of anything, but it wasn't the time. It wasn't the right time for him to lay down his life. He lays down his life of his own accord. No one, no one takes it from him by force. He lays it down of his own accord. But it's like he, he gets out of the frying pan and it's almost like he's into the fire. Now that it's like, it's like Satan is working in all kinds of ways to get at him. And if it's not through the Pharisees, scribes, and the Herodians, the, the, the civil authorities, it's through the crowds that seem to like him. They, they pose a threat to him. Verses 9 to 10, it says, He told his disciples to have a boat ready. He's by the sea, right? Have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. It's like, you know, that's a heck of a kind of thanks. You know, it's like the more good he did, almost the more danger he placed himself 
in. So Jesus tells them, you know, have the getaway car ready. Have the getaway boat ready in case I need to make a hasty exit in case this crowd becomes a mob and gets out of control. Everybody wanted a piece of Jesus. They wanted to touch him. Everybody who had diseases. And look, how big was this crowd? We don't know. He doesn't give us a number. But look again at verses 7 to 8, the way Mark describes it. A great crowd followed. Uh, from, from Galilee, so far so good, Judea and Jerusalem, and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan, and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm geographically challenged. Um, I, I, I get the, the basic gist of things, but the geographical spread that's pictured by Mark here is amazing. It, it basically covers all of the promised land, all of the territory of Israel, during the United Kingdom under David and Solomon. And it even seems to cover beyond that. Because what does it say? Beyond the Jordan. Beyond, beyond the boundaries of the promised land. And Mark even says somewhere beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. It's, it's kind of a hint of the spread of the gospel outside of the, of the land of Israel. You know, and I, I say this before and I, I sometimes feel like I have to say it again. It's not normal. This isn't normal. When I was a kid, I remember reading these stories and having the, the, the nice ladies in our Sunday school classes that, that taught these stories to us with the little flannel graphs and things. I was under the impression somehow, um, during Bible times, this just happened all the time, that you'd have some rabbi or teacher and you know, millions of people would just follow them. That this was just, a, you know, our day nobody does that. Well, we have cars. We all have our nice polite little church groups and things. But in Bible times, this was, this was all the time. Uh, it's not all the time. This was a, not a normal thing. There's a reason that the Pharisees and everybody that was in the, the authority figures in, in, in Israel were getting nervous, were getting upset, were, were t- kind of setting their sights on Christ because all of a sudden here's this guy from out of nowhere and everyone's flocking to him. And he's showing the power and authority of, of the Messiah. There's a messianic buzz going on uh, here in, in Israel. And so, you know, this is a messianic fervor that's spreading. They, they knew what it was. They weren't just worried because, hey, there's some guy who's popular and he's more, he has a bigger church than me. So, you know, that wasn't what was going on. Everybody was flocking to this guy and his authority was, was becoming more and more obvious. You know, now the Gospels, especially the Gospel of John, but Mark, maybe a more subtle way, maybe you've noticed this, maybe you haven't noticed it before, but they often portray Jesus as a new Moses of sorts. John especially. John hits you over the head with it over and over again if you read through the Gospel of John. But, but the Gospels portray Christ in many ways as a new Moses, and that shouldn't be a surprise to us if we know our Old Testament. Moses himself prophesied that that was going to happen. Back in Deuteronomy 18.15, there he tells the people of Israel, quote, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. A prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall or must listen. In other words, there's going to be a guy like me. Now think about what, what Moses is saying. He's not just saying, hey, God always uses prophets. And after me there's going to be another one. A new Moses, that's tip top. Like, that's the prophet of prophets. He's saying, and, and in fact, Moses seems to be hinting bigger than me. You, you thought I was big. I mean, Moses was the one that God used to rescue Israel out of slavery in Egypt. He had Moses 
with a little help from Aaron. You know, go up to Pharaoh, the mightiest man on the earth, and say, thus saith the Lord. You know, let my people go that they might worship and serve me uh, in the wilderness. And God, God judged Egypt and rescued his people by the... I mean, it was God that did it, but God did it through the hand of his servant Moses. Well, when, so when he says, God's gonna raise, you know, the Lord's going to raise up from among you a prophet like me, that's a mouthful. He's not just talking about a mouthpiece for God, although he is more than that. In a sense, the redeemer, the rescuer, the one who is going to rescue his people from slavery, that they might worship and serve the Lord. Well, that's Jesus. And Mark, Mark paints a kind of a picture just like the Gospel of John does. Jesus, to give an example, Jesus gives the people the law of God's kingdom in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 5 through 7, when it, you've heard it said of old, thou shalt not, and he quotes the commandments, but I tell you, not contradicting it, here's the real meaning of the law. It's, it's one thing for Moses to give the law to the people, uh, you know, be God's uh, go-between. Jesus is basically saying, I'm the lawgiver. I'm the author of the law. One greater than Moses was there. Just like Moses, Jesus fed a multitude of people with bread from heaven in the middle of the wilderness, the feeding of the 5,000, just like Moses. Here in our text, Jesus goes up on a mountain to meet with God the Father in verse 13, much like Moses did when he received the law of God. In fact, in Luke's gospel, the parallel passage to ours, Luke 6.12, we're told that Jesus, quote, went out on the, uh, to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. Remember, Moses was up so long they started making the golden calf. Jesus was praying all night on top of a mountain to God before choosing the apostles. I don't think that's an accident. I don't think that's a coincidence. That was such an important thing that he spent the entire night in prayer to his father. Now, you know, we might be tempted to think, you know, Jesus is Jesus. He's the Lord. If anybody didn't need to pray about anything, it would be Jesus. But you see Jesus praying all the time. He needed and wanted time with his heavenly father, even for these crucial things, like choosing these men whom he would use to spread his church, spread his gospel and build his his church. And that brings us to the second point, the second main point of our, of our text, the calling of the 12 in verses 13 to 21. Um, here we go from the crush of the crowd, but we can't even figure out how many there were, you know, a great multitude of people that threatened to crush Jesus, to Jesus up on a mountain calling just 12 people to himself. Huge difference, huge difference in focus. Here we see the, the calling of the apostles of Jesus Christ. Mark refers to them as the 12 in verse 16, we get the feeling that's kind of a title that was common, commonly used for them. It's a very important and often, I think, underappreciated event in the history of the church. It would probably be very difficult to, uh, to exaggerate their importance. We don't think about it that much. You know, we, we just take for granted that we have Bibles and we don't think about sometimes about who the men were God used to write uh, our New Testament and things like that. But verses 13 to 14, it says... And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve whom he also named apostles so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. So think about this. They're already following him. They're already disciples of Christ. We've read some of them in particular. We've read 
Peter, Andrew, James, John, and Levi, who has been renamed Matthew, in the pages of Mark's Gospel. He doesn't give us the rest. He doesn't give us every single time that Jesus called you know, one, of these, one of these 12 men. But they're called to follow him. They're already following him. They're following him wherever he goes. If he's in Capernaum, they're in Capernaum. If he's in Galilee, they're in Galilee. If he's out by the lake or by the sea, that's where he is. If he's in the synagogue, they're in the synagogue. If they're traveling and remember, eating the heads of grain and the Pharisees are critiquing them, well, they're with him. They're, they're going where he goes. Well, now he ratchets it up a little bit. He calls them not just to be disciples, but he calls or summons is probably a better word for it, uh, those whoever he willed to now be his apostles. And out of that great sea of humanity down by the sea, Jesus chooses a handful of men whom he decided to use to build his church, his restored and renewed Israel in a sense. You know, twice in, in the text here it says that he appointed 12, verses 14 and 16, say, in the ESV anyway, it says they, he appointed 12. Uh, the Greek word in both those verses is really the word that usually more commonly means to, to make or to do. It's poieo. It's, it's, a, very, it's a more simple word. Uh, but in a sense, you know, Mark is saying these are, we use a phrase sometimes, you ever hear the phrase, someone was a made man? Well, these are made men. He's making them apostles. It's the work of Jesus Christ to do just that. And what was Jesus' training program here? Mark tells us it's a pretty short part of the text. What's Jesus' method of training these, these men to be apostles? Verse 14 says they, that he called them was to what? That they might be with him. That's the first thing, was they might be with him. That has to come before all else. And that's still true today. No one's an apostle today. But to be used in ministry, you have to spend time with Jesus Christ. Uh, not physically like these men did, but it, that's still the prerequisite to being used by God. Being with Jesus is the primary qualification and training ground for those whom Christ would decide to use. Not skill. Not the skill's a bad thing. Not even gifts, not even natural talents or abilities, not even a magnetic personality. We see many churches today that are built on magnetic personalities. And when the poles of that magnetism reverse, bad things happen and those churches tend to collapse. Jesus doesn't use those things. He may use them despite themselves, but being with Jesus is the first qualification. In fact, back in Acts chapter 1, when the Holy Spirit moved the apostles to appoint another man to take the place of Judas Iscariot, what was the first qualification that, they, that, that was brought to their mind? Acts chapter 1, verses 21 to 22 tells us the first qualification was that man had to have been with Jesus. It says, So one of the men, uh, uh, one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to the resurrection, to his resurrection. So it wasn't just the twelve that were following Jesus, but of those men he picked twelve. And after Judas he moved the church to pick one who had been with him to replace him, that there still might be twelve not only that, but later on in Acts chapter 4, verse 13, when Peter and John, you know, these simple fishermen, uneducated men, were standing before the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin, 
Luke writes this. Now when they saw, the Sanhedrin, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated common men. They were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. In other words, they're looking at these guys who are withstanding them to their face, graciously but firmly, and saying, who are these hicks? Who are these yokels? They're, they're dumb fishermen. But what was the difference? What made them so bold? It wasn't anything that, that they would think of as, as big, but they realized the difference was these men had been with Jesus. They thought they had done away with Jesus when they crucified him, probably. They thought they had rid themselves of them. And what do they find out? It's almost like now they have 12 of them. Jesus is multiplying his power and ministry through these simple men. You know, in and of themselves, these men were nothing special. If it weren't for the Bible having their names in it, and what God did through them in the name of Christ, we would not know their names. We would not know who they are. Those people weren't wrong in the Sanhedrin when they called them uneducated common men. They're common men. Uneducated. Com- you know, maybe there's probably a hint of they're just dumb you know, not just they haven't been to school, but they're just rock stupid. Um, they're uneducated common men, but they had been with Christ, and that made all the difference. They had been with an uncommon Savior, and that's what makes common men useful. The Lord Jesus doesn't call the prepared. He doesn't call the gifted. He prepares, equips, and gifts those whom he calls. That's the difference. He, the, the church, he, Christ's church doesn't work the way the world works. He doesn't look at somebody you know, down from the right hand of God the Father and say, oh, that person's special. I need to use the famous guy, the powerful guy, the whatever. He, he saves all kinds. He doesn't need anything. In fact, he gets more glory, it seems like, to use regular dumb folk like us. Right? Present company excluded. You're not dumb. But, but you know what I'm saying. He doesn't say, oh, this is somebody who's so gifted I have to use him. No, he uses the ones that glorify him by spending time with him. And he, he called them to be with him. What else did he call them? What was his plan? What, were, what was he calling them to do? Verse 14 says that he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. Now, I, I think that's probably going to start ringing a bell, both with our passage and, and the, the chapters before, because what did we see Jesus doing in the first three chapters of Mark's Gospel? Preaching having authority to cast out demons and healing the sick. And what's he now calling them to do? Spend time with him, and then they're going to preach. He's going to, you know, the word apostle, it means, it's, it comes from the word to send out. That's, that's kind of the point. He sends them forth, sends them out. He's going to send them out to preach and have authority over demons. So he calls to himself the twelve, that they might be with him, that he might send them out to preach and do what he did, to preach, to have authority to cast out demons And as we know from the book of Acts, they even did heal some people at times. He's multiplying his ministry and extending his ministry in building the church through these 12 men. The apostles were Christ's ambassadors, his representatives, the heralds of the king of kings. They took his message to the ends of the earth, and they were often mistreated and abused for it, just as Jesus himself had been. You know, if you ever read, you ever get a chance to read, maybe some of you have already read it, um, the, the book, Fox's Book of Martyrs, I highly, it doesn't sound like a fun read, 
Um, I highly recommend it to you. It's very encouraging, oddly enough. It's very edifying. Um, but it has, early on, the, the accounts from church history and tradition of, of the martyrdom of the apostles, all but one, martyred. I won't go into how and all that kind of stuff. But, and, and the one who wasn't martyred, they tried to kill him and it didn't work. The apostle John, the one whom Jesus loved, and John, when he wrote the book of Revelation, where was he? He was in, on the island of Patmos. It was kind of a, you know, uh, Alcatraz, so to speak. It was a prison island. It was a prison colony where you couldn't escape from. Now think about this. Why were all the apostles, even including John's persecution of him, uh, why were they so mistreated? Why were they martyred? Because they, they, were little, they were like little Jesuses walking around. Other than the fact they didn't die for our sins, Jesus worked through them to do the very things he did. The world saw Jesus in them, knew they had been with Jesus, and so they treated them like they treated him. And the world, as the book of Acts would say, or Hebrews would say, the world was not worthy of them. Sometimes great likeness to Christ, um, it, it brings a similar reaction from, from the world. We shouldn't be surprised that the enemies of Christ are also the enemies of his church. But as our king... Uh, Earlier this week, uh, Wesley and I were looking through the shorter catechism about the ki- Christ as king, you know, the threefold office, prophet, priest, and king. And the, the catechism mentions what, what the scriptures mention, that as king, what does Christ do? He subdues us to himself through the gospel. That's what he did with his disciples. But he also gathers and defends his church. He gathers and defends his church. He does that through the apostles and other means, and he also judges or conquers his enemies and the enemies of his people, which are one and the same uh, enemies. Um, now, Jesus purposefully chose, you know, a lot of times in the, in the Bible, numbers are significant, right? Now, you notice the crowd, we don't know how many were there. doesn't matter. Mark didn't take a head count and go, here's the important thing, the big crowd. But when he came to the apostles, twice he tells us, after even naming them, so basically three times in the text, if you know how to count, he's saying, twelve. There were 12. Hello, ding, 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 ding. You know, he might, if, he, if there was highlighting, pre-highlighting in the Bible, there would have been highlighting over the number 12. Now, that brings to mind what? From your Old Testament, the 12 tribes of Israel. These men were the foundation on which Christ was going to build his church. Again, they're not remarkable or exceptional men by any stretch of the imagination, but the success and worldwide spread of the gospel and the growth of the church um, again, it's not to be understood as being caused by these men in and of themselves, but it's the result of the work of Christ's Spirit in and through them. But the apostles were the foundation of us. They're our foundation of the, of the church, the household and temple of God. In Ephesians 2.20, Paul says this. He says all of this, the church, the people of God, is, quote, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So, in other words, he's picturing the church, us, as a new temple, a new structure being built. And what's the foundation? These men, the apostles and the prophets, I believe, of the Old Testament. And Christ himself is the cornerstone. To be sure, Revelation chapter 21, verses 12 to 14, this is what it says. Remember the vision of the new Jerusalem descending from heaven? It's not a, a building, literal building. It's not a literal city. It's us. It's, it's the church. It's Christ's people. But this is the description that that it paints. 
John writes, it had a great high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed on the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. The, the entire expansion of this great city. In every direction, the twelve tribes of Israel, the twelve sons of Israel were listed. And then it says, And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. So, it, 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 so much you could say there, I won't, I won't belabor the point, but we have one Bible with one gospel, with one Redeemer, with one people of God, not two. We don't have Israel over here and the church over here. It's all one. Everyone who's ever been saved in the history of humanity has been saved by faith in, the, in Christ the Messiah and no other way. God has one redeemed people and the New Jerusalem shows it. It's a unity. It's one structure, not two. God doesn't have you know, the penthouse and the, the, nanny, the granny flat. It's one big house. It's one big city and people of God. Think about what a testimony that is to the grace and power of Jesus Christ. That he could take such a ragtag, motley crew of unremarkable, common, uneducated, and diverse men and use them to turn the whole world upside down. You know, I, I sometimes uh, can be discouraged. Maybe you can be too. I'm like, what can we possibly do, a small little church like this, to, to, to do something with the gospel for a moment? Well, Christ used 12 people. We're not apostles. We're never going to be apostles. But Christ uses all kinds of unlikely, uncommon, or regular common things. J.C. Ryle writes this, What a vast amount of benefit these few men, these 12, have conferred on the world. The names of a few Jewish fishermen are known and loved by millions all over the globe, while the names of many kings and rich men are lost and forgotten. The, the people the world thinks are so important, they come and go. And the, the, the sands of time wash over everything and nobody remembers their names. These names are written down in God's word. They'll never be forgotten. And we are actually built on the foundation of them. You know, and it shouldn't escape our notice that at the end of our text, lest I omit this, that the cross is foreshadowed here again in, in Mark 3, isn't it? What does it say? Who's, you know, a lot of these names have no comments. But the last one does. Some of them do, but the last one does. Judas Iscariot, verse 19. Who did what? Early on, it's like, you know, the people that were reading this gospel the first when it first came out, they knew the end of the story. They, were pre they heard the preaching, they heard it taught, but Mark's like, don't forget, Jesus chose this one too. And he did so for a reason. Think about this. The Lord Jesus Christ purposefully chose one whom he would later refer to as a devil, John 6, 70. Uh, he chose him, chose even Judas, knowing full well that that would entail his own betrayal and crucifixion at the hands of wicked men. While he's praying to the Lord on top of that mountain, one of the things he's probably thinking about is, I'm picking that one. That's the guy who's going to betray me. He's going to have that man following him, serving along with the rest, and yet the entire time, the purpose of that one uh, was by, by God's foreordination before the foundation of the world, was that that man might betray him, that he might be crucified for our salvation from sin. He's sovereign over all things, even, even that. That wasn't an accident. Jesus didn't let one slip. 
He even knew ahead of time that that's what was going to happen. May the Lord Jesus Christ be pleased to continue his work in building his church through us in our day, in our town, through calling men to be with him, not to be apostles, but to be with him, that he might send them forth to preach the gospel in our day as well. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for scriptures such as these. Thank you for all of your word. It's all given for a reason. And we thank you for these men, these 12, who are, maybe if we had met them before, we would have thought nothing of them, wouldn't have even noticed them, might have avoided them. And yet you, you by your grace uh, and power, chose to use them, to, to bring them to a saving knowledge of you, to spend time with you, that you might be pleased to use them to glorify your name by the preaching of the gospel and the building of your church. And we thank you that we are not an end in and of ourselves, but we are part of the structure being built on that foundation of your apostles and prophets, of your son being the chief cornerstone. And we ask, we thank you for, for, for putting us into your building, making us living stones. And we ask that you might be pleased to use uh, this little church here, our church and our sister churches in town as well to be a part of of building on that foundation of the apostles and prophets and Christ the cornerstone, that you might be pleased to save many from sin and, and sanctify them and build them up in Christ for salvation. For it's in Christ's name and for his glory that we pray. Amen.